purple elephant shower thought of the day, which I just, you know, got from Reddit. Black holes are at the top of the food chain, so I guess that means humans aren't top dogs anymore. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Today's guest is calling all the way from Florida, specifically North Florida University. He's a ceramicist, ceramicist, ceramics major, uh, business minor, and he is my closest cousin in age. And I'm talking about none other than Ryan Green. Welcome to the show. Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Happy to be here. God, I feel like, I mean, even just before, uh, like the pandemic, we still haven't seen each other in person in such a long time, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad we're able to just have this talk. And I think what I like about the podcast format is that I can ask you questions that aren't just like, Oh, how's school? I can kind of get deeper into it. So that's why, like, I like inter like doing interviews with family and friends, because um, I can kind of dive deeper in, and it is especially good for you because I mean you're a creative and you're an artist, so I think it's kind of like a two birds with one stone. Get a podcast episode and get to learn more about my cousin. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I was excited. Uh, I was excited you reached out to me. I'm uh, very uh, interested to see how this goes. I love it. Yeah. Uh, well, let's just dive right into it. I, the first thing, I kind of want to hear your like story of how you got into ceramics. And we don't need to touch on, we'll talk a little bit later in the interview, like your previous major. But I just want to hear what was like, what about ceramics really drew you into it? Like I remember when I was younger, like in elementary school and stuff, we always did these little things out of clay that were, I don't know, I, I didn't really think much of it, but I would see my my older brother and my older sister coming home and they had their, their bowls and different things that they made in high school ceramics. And I was like, wow, like we can use that stuff. And I, it was just super interesting to me. So like when I went to high school, I started in my junior year, I took a ceramics class, a pottery class, and started making some things. And my teacher had asked me if I wanted to, if I knew about AP ceramics or AP 3D studio art. And I was like, no, but what is that? And I just kind of laughed at her. And then about halfway through the year, I kind of got more into it and was like, oh, what's, what's that class you were talking about? So then my senior year, I spent every day in the studio just kind of like working on something different and when I went to college I uh, asked if I could use any space in the studio like rent any space and just like make some things and they said that they couldn't really just let me rent space in the studio if I wanted to be in the studio I had to be a student so I uh, was like oh well sign me up (laughs) like what is there an open class and after that semester I had changed my major to ceramics so yeah, it was pretty interesting. 
So, like, becoming a ceramics major was more so just to have access to the studio than just, like, it was more so you wanted to create, and then it was just a side effect of, like, oh, you have to get this piece of paper degree to, to be in the studio, and you're like, all right, <laughs> is that kind of the what it was like? Um, you know, I haven't thought about it quite like that. Uh, I feel like the degree part of it kind of came that I feel like, yeah, it was definitely a side effect of just like, okay, well, yeah, if I, I want to be here. So I guess if I get a paper for being here, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. You get, uh, yeah, I like that. Um, so just with ceramics in general, cause I mean, I know you kind of have like, you do kind of other stuff with um, sculpture and you know you talked about your 3d design class what specifically about ceramics draws you into it over um like other 3d forms and even 2d forms like painting and drawing i think it's a couple things um partly just the the variety that you can get from it because it's just so so broad you can kind of get different i mean Different, so I mean, if you're starting with different kinds of clay, that'll go to different temperatures, and then you can use those for different things, and then you can have different glazes or different slips or um, a combination of, of both of those, and then you can fire in different atmospheres, whether it's salt, soda, wood, gas, um, then there's different types of gas, or if you're just doing electric, and then, um, so the process behind it is very fascinating to me and how you can vary your results so much depending on what process you take. But I also just love the science behind the processes. Um, there, there's so much detail and different variables that you can change in the slightest way to achieve such different results. Um, and really, all the only way to figure out what you can get is by doing the research and saying, okay, well, this and this, you get this. And a factor like what type of water you use can change your results entirely. Um, so it's, it's just kind of funny because there are people that have had studios around the country, but they can't get the same results in different studios because their water source is a little different. Um, so it's, it, it's like every little thing changes the outcome. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just what's I up? Didn't, I didn't realize how much of like a process-driven thing it was because I always mm – -hmm my perspective knowing nothing about um ceramics but i always just thought it was like you know you're given the clay you make something and then you fire it in a kiln because that's like what we that was the process in like elementary school and yeah. i never took it in you know high school so i never got beyond that process and i don't think a lot of other people have so i think it's cool to hear your perspective of like how intricate it can really get yeah that's really just the just scratching the surface. There's really not much detail in that. That's just kind of like an overview of a, a small overview of what types of like firings and clays you can kind of get into. But it, it, you're, I'm right there with you. There's there's a lot that I think isn't really talked about nowadays in terms of ceramics, um, and it's like a hidden world. And once you get in there, it's just. Uh, it's like you only know what people have taught you or what you've learned through doing, and only the people that have gone there know what you're talking about, and it's mm -hmm. kind of fun. And do you think because the way I see ceramics, it's more of a abstract kind of art? Because, I mean, it's definitely process-driven, and maybe you make a, a cup or a tea kettle or um, 
a plate. But I think more than a lot of other arts, maybe sculpture, it seems so... I, th- I guess abst- abstract is the best word. But in your opinion, do you ever go in thinking like, I want to make something that looks like a bird or maybe not a bird, but like I'm going to like make something and have it look like a certain piece of, you know, something you see in nature, like maybe a, a flower-looking pot. Do you ever go with that mindset? Or is it... Yes. Yeah, keep going. It's a... It's kind of like, that's kind of how I started with it. Um, and I'm kind of getting back into that as well. Um, so all of my sculpture, sculptures are centered around nature. And in high school, I was definitely more uh, sculpture driven. That's kind of what we did more so than cups and bowls and whatnot. Um, so yeah, when I'm, anytime I'm making anything sculptural, I kind of do like to relate it to nature in one way or another. And I've gone very literal with that. And I've gone, um, as, as I would say, a lot more abstract. I'm curious on what you mean in uh, how pottery is abstract, um, but I uh, when I when I got to college is what, kind of when I started focusing more on functional wear, and that's just because of the difference in quality that my professors made of functional wear versus what I had seen before, and I was very intrigued and wanting to learn how to make that kind of stuff. Um, so I've kind of been going in that route for the past couple years and now I'm starting to kind of still going in that direction but also adding to where I started which is sculpture so now I'm kind of trying to relate things to leaves and trees and different forms and lines and um, use of space positive and negative and um, just kind of creating different things that I that I kind of see when I look to nature yeah yeah and and just I think the way I look at abstract versus, I don't know, concrete is kind of Mm -hmm. if you looked at something, if you looked at something you made, you'd be able to, something concrete, you'd be able to say, this reminds me of this. And abstract is looking at something and thinking, I don't know what that looks like. Like, it's just so unique. And I think, I think there's upsides and downsides to that, like upsides being it's so unique, so remarkable that it's just an original piece. And I think maybe the downside is that abstract work might turn like kind of lay people, people who don't know the whole process. It might turn them off and thinking, oh, this is just kind of weird. I don't know what's going on because they can't like, like it doesn't remind them of anything else. So Mm -hmm. would you want to talk about, because you did mention earlier that ceramics is kind of its own world. How do you kind of introduce people to the process who've never tried it, who don't know about it? Um, Where would you start? I feel like I I would start the same way that um, I feel like a lot of people start, and that is just like you kind of said before, is giving somebody a ball of clay and saying, make something, and then... I would probably show them like more about the firing process and give them more options than just an electric kiln, which is what I think most people are given when they start. Um, And then it's like, okay, yeah, it's fired once, put a glaze on it and put it in another kiln. But I think that I would kind of take them through and say, okay, well, here are all the options you can do and give them a lot of information at once, which shows them all the, all the different options. But, obviously you can't learn all the options at once. So they would pick one and then 
learn from that. And I think that's kind of how, if I was like teaching somebody about, I'm not sure if that's where you're going with it. Yeah, Maybe yeah. If, were you talking more in conversation? Like how, how would I introduce somebody to it or more? Well, cause um, I think of, um, I was scrolling through your Instagram and you <laughs> took Allie to the studio, our cousin. Mm. Um, so like something like that, where you're taking someone in, not just explaining it, but saying like, Hey, you wanted to try this, come to the mm. studio with me, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny because where Ali and I did it, there weren't a lot of options. It really there. It really is just, uh, you get an electric kiln and some glazes and you aren't even a part of the loading process for the kilns. You don't know how to load a kiln. You don't mix the glazes. You don't do much to it. It's a, it's a great setup that they have there, but it's not a learning setup. It's just a go in and do setup. So if I was teaching somebody, I would, uh, I would love to have the environment that I have currently at the university, which is just an abundance of kilns and uh, a dry materials room where I can mix any kind of clay I want, and any kind of glaze or any slip that I'd like. And um, I really have absolutely endless possibilities. So it's not just what the studio has provided, but it's also what can I find on the internet or from my teachers or go and then go in and make whatever it is I'm trying to make to make with what I just made, if that makes sense. So like I could go in and I could mix a clay body and glazes and slips, and then I can use that clay body, make something with it, and then test different slips and how those glazes work over those slips and all that. So I have endless possibilities with the materials that I'm provided. Yeah. So I would love to bring somebody into that kind of setup. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it almost seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only time you're going to get those like really authentic environments are in college or if you're a professional and you kind of build the the studio yourself. Do you agree with that? Is that kind of the 100%, fact of the matter? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no doubt about that for sure. I mean, I mean, do you think something like uh, paint me pottery, which I mean, it's <laughs> just the painting. Does that kind of like take away from the magic of ceramics or does it even like – it's probably not even comparable or what would you say to that? Yeah, it's tough because there's a lot of people that kind of have that perspective on it. So it's, I feel like it doesn't necessarily take away from the, um, from kind of like this, I don't know, from the allure of ceramics. It doesn't necessarily take away from it, but I think it almost adds to it in a way. And the fact that people think they know ceramics when they do that kind of thing. And then when they learn that there is so much more, it's like, it's kind of like this awe moment of like, oh, wow, there is like a lot more to it than just this. And it, I feel like it just kind of exemplifies the allure more. Yeah. Just kind of to make a jump, because I mean, my kind of area of expertise, if you want to call it that, which is a stretch, but my world is kind of film and filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of similarities just from what you've already explained in terms of the process mindset, because mm-hmm. for film, there's kind of these three parts where it's, you know, you have the idea, you write the script, then all the filming, then the editing. And I think you could really make some jumps in saying how it's similar to pottery where it's like, okay, you make the thing, there's a whole mm-hmm. process Definitely. to firing it in the kiln and doing all this stuff. And then you paint it and then you have that final product. I wanted Mm -hmm. to know from your end, 
what is the most satisfying part of the process? Is it the end or is there somewhere in there a, a deeper satisfaction? Um, it's a great question. And there's not really one answer to that because it varies from one project to the next. I feel like the best part of each project is when I look at it and I like it the most. <laughs> but I don't always like it more when it comes out of the kiln than I did putting it into the kiln. So there's that that uh, that variable that goes into it. So it's kind of like I enjoy every part equally when I learn from it. And one of the last firings that we had, um, the first firings in the newest kiln that we have was kind of, uh, I don't want to say disastrous, but it, it didn't have a lot of results that were usable. Like, a lot of the functional wear had problems with it that made it not so functional or not sellable. Um, so you can learn a lot from that and look at all these pieces and say, okay, well, what did we do wrong to make this happen? What can we do differently to prevent it? And uh, that part, I think, is probably the most interesting part, just looking at things and learning from them and saying, okay, well, how do I get this result again or how do I prevent this result? And then trying to recreate that or get the result that you're going for. I think that's the, having the control over what you get is the most interesting part. Mm. Going back to like so many options and it's just like I can choose from all these options. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Well, I wanted to touch on something you said in there of, you know, it not being sellable if it, you know, if it didn't come out right. Just the idea of selling and, um, you know, specifically the the functional wear kind of items, is it often where you're just like, do you, well, first of all, do you do commissions for that kind of stuff? I started to at one point, and it really takes away from the, um, the from the creative process. That's and what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. So, at least at the at the beginning, more so because. I didn't really have a direction or know what I was doing that much. I thought I did, but then the more you learn, the less you know. And it just kind of comes down to like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have done commissions so early because it was somebody wanting things from me that I had never made before. So while they were still like simple things and she was saying, make it however you want to, I didn't necessarily have this abundance of ideas to choose from and say, well, how do I want to make this? Um, and I was testing out new processes, so it was just kind of like an experiment in itself. But then it was also, I have to make sure that this experiment comes out right because somebody's already paid me to do it. Um, so selling is, I, if I'm selling work at this point, I like to sell the work that I've made and chosen to sell, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, commission work, it does seem like it can, well, I mean, even if you're given all this creative freedom. I get what you're saying about if you don't have an abundance of stuff you've done before where you've tried all these different techniques, then it might be like you're limited in what you could create for this person. Like what's kind of like the hardest piece you've had to do, whether it's functional wear or, you know, a different project that didn't have to be functional. What has been the hardest piece in terms of it's just form, not necessarily the process behind it, but like 
I mean, like a cup might be simple and I don't know, it may not be, but compared to like a, a teapot or is there something that's like the holy grail of difficulty? Um, well, it's funny because you, you kind of, I feel like there's nothing in ceramics that isn't a process based um, action. So to say, to like take out the process part of it, I feel like that kind of takes everything out of it. Um, so I mean, if you're if you're making a cup, right? Let's say you're making a cup on the wheel. So it's it's probably the simplest thing you could do. But in order to do that, you need to know how to throw something on a wheel. And typically, if I if I talk to people about like, oh, I'm gonna like throw some stuff today, they're like, what do you mean you're gonna throw some stuff? They think I'm like throwing stuff at a wall or like like I'm tossing things in the air, right? But that's actually what it, it's called. You're throwing clay on a wheel to to pull it up and create a cylinder and then push out that cylinder to be what you want it to be. But in order to know how to get that ball of clay centered on the wheel, there's a lot of process behind that and then forming a cup. Um, and even if you're hand building, you need to know how to roll a coil or pinch out a coil and then attach it and know the process behind how clay needs to attach to itself um, and then how to kind of control that form going out and back in putting negative space in there. So I feel like a lot of it comes down to the process and I don't know necessarily what's been the hardest part. Um, teapots are very, very difficult to get a good teapot because of how many components go into it. Um, first you throw the body and then the lid and the lid has to match the lid seats. You need to have like the correct measurements and throw to those exact measurements. Um, but then you also need to throw a spout and create a strainer and put in the strainer, attach the spout, make sure the spout is cut right so it has the right angle so it's not too low, not too high, and then you have to attach a handle, make sure the handle fits the form, so there's a lot of components and steps that go into that part, but they're, I don't know, teapots are definitely harder than a cup, that's for sure, but some of the hand-built stuff that I've made has been probably the hardest just because of the scale and the fact that it's so much larger that it um, a lot that like that much clay sitting on top of itself that isn't fired yet because clay is such a a soft material in a lot of ways before it's fired um, it really is just mud so before it becomes ceramic it's very delicate and when you have a larger piece it's a lot of weight on top of itself so it doesn't like to stay up or it doesn't like to do certain things that you might want it to. So I feel like learning how to create these hand-built forms have probably been the hardest. Kind of a long-winded answer to your question. No, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> kind of went through that. Um, mm -hmm. The other, so I'll be honest, like the only other time I've come, a, like kind of come across pottery and ceramics is with this term of wabi-sabi hmm. are you familiar with it i'm not actually okay and well this will transition kind of to kind of, it'll transition to the philosophy stuff but basically it's a japanese term and i may butcher the exact meaning but it's kind of like embracing the imperfection of specifically hmm. things that are made and hmm. i often see it with like uh, different types of pottery where if something broke like let's say a bowl broke 
instead of just throwing it away, they um, will kind of glue it back together with the golden, um, yeah. some type of golden thing, and it'll look almost more beautiful. Are you, you were I've nodding your head before. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you, when you're making things and they don't turn out to where it's not sellable, like you kind of mentioned earlier, is there ever a time where you're thinking like, like maybe I don't like this better, but like I'm glad it turned out the way it did, even though it wasn't how you expected? Um, I guess it kind of comes down to why it is that I don't like it. Um, because so, so some of the things that I mentioned earlier that like weren't sellable and weren't necessarily functional anymore, they, it was for different reasons. Like for, for some of them, they had what's called bloating. So the clay had gases that were trying to leave the clay body, but it sealed over before it could happen. So there's these little bubbles inside like the walls of the body. So it, it, I spent all this time making a smooth form and then it has all these little like dimples on it. So it's kind of upsetting. Um, but at the same time, I see where you're, where you're going with that in terms of like, well, that's not how I wanted it to, but is that really a problem? And I don't know. I, I guess it's kind of nice that I, I get to keep it for myself <laughs> and I don't have to worry about giving it away, you know? So I, I still get this, uh, this nice piece of art that gets to stay in my home. So there's always, yeah, there's always a good thing about it. And like I said earlier, I still get to learn from that as well. So I, I learned not to fire that kind of, in that specific way. But I, I do, I have seen some of those pots that you're talking about. Um, and I've, I've even seen some people like comment on other, other potters posts where somebody will post a picture of a, a broken pot that they dropped in the studio and it's like, oh, well, it's not really broken. You can fix it. And they've mentioned that technique. Um, and yeah, it's just like a gold inlay that you reattach these pieces and it looks like it's one piece again. And it is really interesting how they, how they do that. I'm, I guess it's different if you have a broken piece that's put back together and it's like a, a perfectly beautiful piece that's put back together um, rather than a perfectly beautiful piece that was defective due to firing. Um, yeah, okay, I get what you're saying. Like an accidental mm -hmm. it cracking would be different than those bu mm -hmm. that bubble thing you mentioned earlier. Exactly, yeah. Um, but that is a I, I just brought that up to kind of transition to philosophy because um, mm. I think that I don't know I mean it just seems like that's another aspect of your personality because um, mm. I I know you um, have a tattoo that uh, like the allegory of the cave mm -hmm. is that right yeah um, it is we can talk about that a little bit but I just want to know what your kind of what kind of philosophy you're interested in? What's your philosophy on life? Take it wherever you want to go. Um, <laughs> just kind of lead the conversation of philosophy. Um, well, I'll, let, uh, I'll lead this off with a great quote, actually. and It's one of my favorite quotes that has influenced my life a lot. And it's, uh, it's a quote by John Lennon. And he's talking about how when he was five years old, he was in kindergarten. And his teachers asked him what he wanted out of, out of life. And he said, or what he wanted to be when he grew up, I'm sorry. They asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. 
and he said that he wanted to be happy. And they said that he didn't understand the assignment. And he told them that they didn't understand life. Um, so I've always loved that one because the importance of life is to be happy. And whatever you're doing, I think that the end-all goal to that should be to make yourself as well as the people around you happy. Um, because it's not, always, it's not just about what makes you happy because that can be hurtful to other people. But if you are happy and the people around you are happy, then that's a good life. So that's kind of what I live by a lot. And um, I've had definitely, I've had one philosophy class and a, an English class that seemed like it was a philosophy class. And both those teachers kind of taught me a lot about um, just kind of like different perspectives. And I, uh, I really appreciate that. So yeah, it's, it is interesting seeing how everybody looks at the world differently, but just kind of accepting how everybody sees the world and hoping that everybody sees each other as people and not, um, I'm sure you've heard uh, treat people as means, not ends. I'm sorry, not as means, as ends. Yeah. <laughs> That's what? like that, flip that one over, but uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I would almost call that just like a happiness philosophy and not attributed mm -hmm. to anyone in particular, but is there, because I mean, you mentioned the philosophy class and the English class, is there a certain period or era of philosophy that you like, whether that's Greek, um, like like Zen, uh, Hindu philosophy, or I mean, just like great leaders who exist today or existed not too long ago, like with John Lennon? Yeah, I, uh, I wish I knew more about philosophy to give you a good answer for that one. <laughs> well, just be, I, I mean, uh, it doesn't need I, to be anything specific. I'm not trying to stop okay. you. I got you, I got you. I mean, what I what I know more about, um, what I've, in an educational setting, what I've been taught more is definitely uh, ancient philosophy. And uh, I guess Greek and English philosophy. So, um yeah, some in London, a lot of philosophers. I guess that's a little bit more modern, but um, I guess I kind of yeah, I guess I kind of have like a certain fascination with Greek philosophy. Um, I mean, that's where Plato was and Socrates, and they kind of led it off, and they just had a very uh, very interesting view on education and. Um, that education was the most important thing um, because you don't know anything until you're taught it um, or until you're shown it or until you've been able to have the experience and understand that perspective. Um, because you can never really know anything until you've tried it or until, um, until you've seen the side that you don't know about. And that's kind of what I love is like you always think you know what you know but then when you're shown what you don't know, you realize that what you knew isn't what you know. <laughs> yeah, like when you see the whole, instead of just like one side of the coin, kind of. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, so with, I mean, I just want to hear about that tattoo, the allegory of the cave. Is that Plato? Mm -hmm. It is Plato. It's a, it's a discussion um, between Plato and Socrates. But... Uh, well, the allegory itself kind of breaks down what I was just talking about in terms of um, 
how people thought they knew the world they lived in that was a world of shadows being cast onto a wall from fire behind them, and they were chained down, so they couldn't move their heads or their bodies or anything. But then once they were able to, one person was able to free himself and look up and see the bright light and deny the truth that he was seeing, but somebody forced him to look at the truth and then eventually go up and out of the cave and into the sunlight and see that there was more to the world and uh, more to the world than what he had thought and um, kind of progressing from all the way down in underneath the cave to outside in the real world and then he had to go back down into the cave to tell the people that he was with uh, that there was so much that they didn't know but when he went from the really bright light of the sunlight outside the cave to this darkness he couldn't see anymore because he, his eyes were accustomed to the shadows and what he believed to be the truth but once he was accustomed to the light he couldn't see in the shadow anymore so the people that were still down there thought he was lying and they didn't understand what he was talking about they didn't believe him they told him he was wrong but once he could kind of understand their perspective of why they couldn't see that he could teach them and un explain his thoughts more because he was then um, his eyes were adapted to the shadows again so he could see there with the knowledge that he had from the sunlight or from the truth so it's kind of yeah it's like learning what the truth really is but then also being able to go back to what you knew before and see that with more knowledge than you had before um yeah it just so looking the at empathy. the having the empathy of like exactly people. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't heard that second part of the story where like uh the guy's eyes adjusted and then he was able mm -hmm. to explain it uh, yeah i've never heard that side of it that's super cool do you have any other stories from greek uh philosophy that stand out maybe not to that extreme but that are like that either resonate with you or just you remember them because they you liked them for some reason or another yeah, um, there was a, a philosopher whose name, his, his name is Hobbes. I can't remember his first name at the moment, um, but he John had this. Hobbes? This was like don't, more recent, not Greek? No, no. I was, he was, a, I believe, an English philosopher, but I can't quite. I, yeah, I, think I, it I think it was John Hobbes. Mm -hmm. It might have been. No, I think it was William Hobbes. What What was the the thing that you liked? Oh, Thomas Hobbes. Um, Just looked it up. Thomas Hobbes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm bad with first names, but I did remember. I knew, his name is Hobbes. He had this uh, kind of a an ideal for how people would act in the wild, and it was that you have to assign some sort of like leader, otherwise people will be chaotic and not like people need rules in order to live in peace because like there's always going to be somebody that tries to step over somebody and get the better of them or whatever so you need rules to keep people in place um, and specifically like with murder people would murder somebody to get food or to get their money or to get whatever resource they had that they that the other person had that they wanted um, so it's just kind of interesting like how people can't just be nice to each other <laughs> and that's 
never going to happen. And you always need some sort of figurehead to tell people they're doing something wrong. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to you have to show people that what they're doing is wrong before they understand what they're doing is actually wrong. Um, and I don't know what it is that kind of would, uh, would help that. I don't know what it is that like could, could help that at all, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting, I thought that was interesting how people kind of need that. Yeah. I mean, I really like your kind of the way you're describing education because I was going to say something earlier, but it doesn't seem like you take the word in like the, the schooling sense. Like you go to school for seven hours a day, you learn, uh, math, reading, science, all that stuff. I think you describe it more as just education in the huge sense of the word where everything can be considered learning and everything can be an opportunity to educate yourself. Is that kind of how you look mm -hmm. at it? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I've definitely had to learn a lot in my life. I just, I've just about like how to treat people and be nice and, um, also live in this world and find a way to live and be a part of society and live independently without, um, I don't know, without the need of like, without the need of help necessarily, but to also just like not be a burden to others, I guess. And like how to live in a, a sort of like, um, utopia of just like how, how to make everything work right. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. And just kind of that, um, independent mindset, but still helping out in the greater mm -hmm. scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I kind of had that mindset too when I was pretty young. Cause I just remember memories of like when I hit eighth grade, I'm like, I'm going to make my breakfast in the mornings. Mm -hmm. And just be totally independent in my in the morning. I'll ride my bike to school or walk, but it's just yeah. like mornings. No one needs to wake me up. I'm just in charge of myself. And I I don't know where that came from, but I think that's carried on to now. And I don't mm -hmm. think everyone realizes that until it might be forced on them, where they're mm -hmm. like left with nothing or they're out of the house and they're just like, oh, I never learned how to do these simple. Um, tasks to take care of myself because someone's always been doing it for me. So yeah, yeah I think no, I resonate with that. Like the better or the quicker you learn it, I mean, I would hope that it wouldn't have to be for um, painful reasons. But I do think everyone at some point in their life leads needs to kind of learn this. Like you're capable of taking care of yourself, and you may not have realized it because someone's been doing it for you, but you mm -hmm. are. Like everyone can find that um you know most everyone can find that um to be independent but yeah, yeah. um let's was, go uh, I, yeah go ahead i kind of like the i will say i kind of liked how you were talking about like math and arithmetic too and stuff or like and science and all that and how that is kind of like a different part of learning but because it's um in the not necessarily in the allegory of the cave, but in Plato's book of the Republic, which the allegory of the cave is within, he kind of goes into how arithmetic and uh, language and writing and 
science kind of all play a part in one's overall education. Um, so it's it kind of like they work together in a lot of ways, but um, you can't really have one without the other. So I, like you need both of them to be the most, like the best person that you can, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, but, and I think also with just educating, education in general, mm-hmm. I think, and this is completely my opinion, but we're yeah. kind of moving towards a more self-education is being valued more than the default kind of path where like if you just did public school and got a degree in business administration, you would be about mm-hmm. where you know 90% of people in college are and maybe – I don't know the exact statistics, but maybe 60% of people go to college or maybe much less – but just like you'd still be in the center of the herd, but then it's the people who will kind of do what you do where you're like wanting to get studio time just because you want to create and learn these new processes. I think that is the most important thing, and I don't think it can be taught, but you might mm-hmm. disagree. But where do you think that desire to like just dive into the studio and try to – get that time to just create, where do you think that urge came from? That's a good question. You Would you say cur- me off on that one. curiosity um, or a different emotion? It's definitely, I mean, definitely a lot of curiosity. I would, I would agree with that one. Um, but if it's not, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess it's really just like wanting to, yeah, I was going to say it's just kind of wanting to figure things out. So that kind of comes back to curiosity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I guess with that in particular, I'm just really interested in the process. Um, So yeah, it definitely drew me in. And that idea of like knowing there's always something else to know, something that I, uh, I guess it's, (laughs) If I kind of go, if I run that through my head a little bit, it kind of comes back to like wanting to know everything. Um, and that kind of sounds bad, I feel like, but I, uh, but yeah, that kind of comes back to curiosity. It's just like, well, I, I know there's something out there that I don't know, so I want to know it. Um, and my old roommate kind of had a similar ide- ideology of just like, I want to know something about everything, but I also feel like I can't move on to the next thing until I know everything about this thing. Um, so um, I know earlier we were kind of talking about plants and with that, there's still a lot to that that I don't know. So I want to learn more about plants, but I felt like in order to learn everything I could about ceramics, I had to take the opportunity while I was at UNF to take advantage of the professors that I have and the equipment that I have there um, the facilities that we have are really like way beyond what most, what almost every other undergraduate program and a good amount of graduate programs have. Um, so it's just kind of like the number of kilns that we have, um, the types of process, the number of processes that we can undertake and like do ourselves and kind of really dive into isn't available at a lot of other places. So I figured I can kind of learn about plants wherever. 
and maybe not wherever, but I can learn about plants in a lot of different ways. And that's something that I feel like I can learn on Google. I can kind of like go to a library and read textbooks about plants and figure out the science behind them. Um, but I can't read about ceramics to, to know how to do it. It's something that I have to do. Um, that When you say that, that reminds me of like a thought experiment. Maybe it's philosophy, but it's like you can't describe like the color red to a blind person who's never seen color. I think that relates a lot to something like ceramics. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Where it's like there are a lot of things where they can only be done and not just explained with textbook after textbook. I, I want to know so like the idea of like can't explain the color red to a blind person I would say you can't teach ceramics to someone who's never like had clay. Do you think that applies to a lot of things or specifically something like ceramics where it's just so hands-on? Um, I think it does apply to a lot of things um, because so at the, at, at school we've been calling it experiential learning and those kinds of classes have to, are, are the only classes that are really allowed on campus to do the things that they need to do. Um, so whether it's photography or ceramics or sculpture or um, like bio lab classes or different health classes that you kind of just need to be there to do the things to figure out what's going on. Um, because a lot of times you're using your hands. So um, I feel like if you're using your hands to undergo a process, you need to understand what that feels like in your hands. Um, and if you don't, then there's sort of disconnect. Um, so another thing that kind of just ran through my head was cooking. Um, like you can't really teach somebody to cook unless like you can't give somebody a test on how to cook things and then tell them to go in the kitchen and cut an onion and expect them to be able to even cut an onion without like you can tell them how to do it, but they aren't going to have the same kind of skill that somebody who's cut an onion a thousand times can do um, or would have. Um, so it's uh, I feel like it does relate to a lot of different things for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that term experiential learning. I've never heard that term before, but it's the hands-on learning. Do you think even if um, this pandemic – like if we go into the future and the pandemic's cleared up, is this kind of like kickstarting this idea that maybe we only need um, in-person classes for experiential learning? Because the way I see it, um, and I explained this to you earlier, but all my classes are online and even like something like my film class, which I could, um, we're still like doing stuff hands-on, but the classes themselves are online. Do you think that we need to be in person for something like a philosophy class or a business class if it's not hands-on? Yeah, I, uh, I think there's definitely a lot of mixed emotions on that um, across the board. I'd say personally, I think it's more be beneficial for me to be in class in front of somebody that's speaking that can see the reaction on my face, that can understand whether or not I'm actually paying attention. Um, and kind of react to that. Um, I, I've seen a lot of professors like kind of call people out that aren't 
completely paying attention. And I don't know if you you've had this experience because I guess our, we've kind of kind of talked about like size of school earlier, and UNF is somewhat of a smaller school. And one thing that they do pride themselves on is small class size. So I mean, I've never been in a lecture hall of more than 150 people, and that seems kind of large. But versus UCF, which has a lecture hall of 500 people, it's like oh wow, like that's nothing. And I can sit in the front row of a hundred-person class, and my my teacher can see me and say oh well what do you think about this and kind of like get my brain going a little bit more than if I was on the other side of a computer screen and they're just kind of rambling on and I uh, look up at my ceiling and I'm just looking at the shadows or whatever I don't know whatever catches my eye and I'm just kind of not paying attention for a minute and then I'm like oh wait I need to be listening to my class and then I kind of like jump back in and I'm like oh yeah okay there was what were we talking about again so uh, that's kind of what I I feel like we need to be I feel like it's beneficial for some people to be in class, but at the same time, it's not mandatory, I feel like. So for some people, they can definitely sit at a computer screen and listen and absorb the information. It'd be perfectly fine. And I feel like they should have the ability to stay at home if they'd like to. Um, and a lot, of, I feel like a lot of professors have offered that um, now when they can. Um, like if they're offering, I guess you said this earlier, if your class can come in, um, you can either sit there in class or watch the same lecture on a screen. And if your teacher's giving you that option, that's awesome. Um, I think that's great. That's kind of what it should be, I think. Yeah, I think from my perspective, what I would hope and kind of what I've seen is because like right now, everything that doesn't need to be in person has moved online. I think what my hope is that it will force teachers to ask themselves kind of what you mentioned earlier, like, how do I make an in-person thing more engaging? Because I've had plenty of classes in my college, um, just being at college so far, where just teachers reading from a PowerPoint that I could skip through at double speed at home and finish in 20 minutes and absorb the same thing. So I think it's asking teachers to say, what value can I offer that can't just be explained online? And my hope is that it will be more engaging and it will force the teachers to step up their game a little bit. Do you think that needs to happen? I mean, because it seems like you are kind of the person who engages in class anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, actually. Um, <coughs> um, the teachers that do kind of sit up there and scroll through a PowerPoint and kind of just read from that and that's whatever, I, I feel like I don't get as much from that. Um, but when, like you're saying, when teachers are more engaging and they kind of create a more um, energetic atmosphere, I feel like that's a lot more helpful. Um, in the art history class that I'm taking right now, it's uh, it's interesting because she is a slower talker, and when people talk slower, I tend to find the spaces of uh, like the, the absence in talking and I find those spaces and I zone out and yeah. then I'm kind of gone for a few minutes so I can watch her lectures like you said like double the speed I literally will put it at one and a half times the speed and if I'm really trying to go through it I will double the speed <laughs> and I can still like understand what she's talking about so that's how you know that she's a slow talker um, when I can listen to somebody at twice the fa twice the speed that they're talking at and still gather words. It's uh, it's something else. So mm -hmm. every once in a while, it'll throw me off, and 
the speed will be at normal. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, why? And I'm like, oh, I forgot to forgot to speed that one up a little bit. <laughs> so it's pretty different. But uh, I do like that ability for those kinds of classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It kind of there's so many variables to it, aren't isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and it definitely does depend on the teacher of you know if they're fast talkers, if they were naturally engaging before. Um, but I want to move away t- from education and philosophy and kind of wrap things up because we're near the one hour mark and at the end of each episode what i like to do is kind of ask like a broad question so it just give it intuitively nothing like nothing needs to be based in anything just from your heart what is your process for getting into flow whether that's in ceramics or another creative um thing that you're doing just doing it, mm-hmm. honestly, just like putting in my headphones and just doing it. And if I, when I, if I'm doing it, then I'm not thinking about doing it. Um, so when I'm thinking about doing it is the hardest part. It's like, I'm trying to figure out how everything is going to work and figure itself out and how this is going to affect that and then that and then that. And really it just never works out the way you think it's going to. So if I just start doing it and stop questioning it, that's the best way for me to get into the flow. Um, Because once you get into a flow, then you can kind of make a lot. And once you have that quantity, you can look at that quantity and say, okay, well, what do I like from that? What do I not like from that? How did I get that? Just because I like it doesn't mean I can repeat it. So how did I get to that? Um, And that's the biggest thing. Um, I guess if if you, yeah, what's up? I was just gonna say, I guess what I'm asking is if there are days where you kind of begin that overthinking process, have there ever been times where you started off feeling like, I'm not feeling it, and then you were able to get in the flow? Um, or is it just like, yeah, I can't do it today? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes even when you, you feel like you can't do it, um, you still have to, and that's definitely the toughest part. Um, and at that point... I feel like it's just kind of like I need to do it, so I'm going to do it, but I can't really question it. And I just I just have to do it. And if it's still really tough, I feel like the biggest thing that I can do personally is just kind of like walk around and look at the trees and look at the flowers and just kind of like look at anything. I like looking at nature because it's living, but it's not – it's living and it's changing and it's ever-evolving, but it's not necessarily looked at as life so it's kind of like this other it's kind of like I look at them and I say hey you guys are living you guys are you guys are killing it you're still here you're doing your thing like I can do that too I can go over here and I can just like do my thing and like not really think about it and just kind of like do what I need to do and like I don't know plants are funny and that you can put them anywhere um, and a lot of times they'll try, you can put a plant anywhere and it will try to survive until it dies. It'll try its hardest and it'll give it its all and it'll say, I'm going to do everything I possibly can until I'm literally unable to do anything more. Um, and it's kind of inspiring <laughs> because they really do just like give it their all. And I guess I kind of look to that and say, okay, well, I'll, I'll try and do what I can do over here and, and not die. <laughs> I love that. That's such a unique take and honestly i that's something i could learn from i 
two plants sitting next to me um that i, I yeah i guess i kind of i i the way i kind of look at nature it is just having greenery in your room is kind of refreshing mm-hmm. like literally you're Definitely. like oh this is like giving more oxygen to the room even if it's like a <laughs> not enough to make a difference but it just feels like that uh the mm-hmm. final like big question i want to ask you which i have asked almost everyone on the other podcast episodes can creativity be taught yes i think it definitely can be um do you think you were taught did you start as a creative kid i don't think so (laughs) but i don't know maybe it's something that was maybe it's something that can only be taught if somebody has it within them if they don't know it's within them and then it's kind of like released in a way um but at the same time i feel like i've seen people with very little creativity make something that is creative in maybe just a different kind of way um because everybody has their style you know so like people are going to create differently regardless of what they're taught but um everybody kind of has this natural tendency to make in a certain way so if you get somebody to sit down and just like start figuring things out they can kind of if they have yeah I, hmm. well what was now you got t- me thinking on the other side what was uh, the tipping point for you though if you think it um, can be taught or at least discovered what was the tipping was, point for you for me it was the curiosity and then finding out like oh there's something i don't know to this i want to know about that um and I can only say that so simply and confidently because of us talking about it earlier and me thinking through it and understanding like, oh, well, yeah, that's why I like doing what I do is because of everything that there is that I don't know about it, that I want to know about it. Um, and to me, there's only one way to know about, to find out about it. So um, I, I still like, I still personally don't think I'm necessarily the most creative person. I mean, between the people around me, and me, I make more because I like to make and I like the process. Other people, maybe not all of them, but a lot of people have this sort of innate ability to draw and paint and see colors in a certain way that they can apply them and create these very artistic pieces. Um, and I create very smooth forms that I put into an atmospheric firing and I get what's called flashing. So it's kind of like these, um, do you know, have you ever looked at something that got really, like a really hot piece of metal and it had like a heat signature of it, of different colors that have come across it? So a flame in a wood fire or a salt fire or a soda fire can have these different temperatures throughout that flame and affect the, the way it wraps around a piece. You get these different colors and so I kind of let that decorate my pieces and I kind of let that be in a way the fire is the artist creating that, but I'm just giving it a form to act upon. So I don't necessarily draw or paint or create these things on my forms that would do that. But I let, I just, yeah, so I make because I like to make. So I'm not necessarily what I would call the most creative person. So I don't know. It's everybody, and that kind of goes back to me saying that everybody's creativity is different. Um, so I think it, you can teach somebody the possibilities 
and they can use the creativity they have to come up with a different set of possibilities using a combination of those kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I like I think that's interesting that you don't embrace or you don't define yourself as creative just from an identity perspective. But you think that like some of the other um of your friends or just peers do have that. But I would argue that what the way you describe just making to make because you like the process because you're curious, I would say that is what creativity is and it's not I don't think creativity should be defined by skills you're able to have in the same way that just because you're born with athletic abilities doesn't mean you will be an athlete and yet someone who works their butt off can um, yeah if they just have that little spark they can become that um, full-blown athlete or in your case that full-blown artist they don't need to be born with you know, the genes for it is what I'm exactly. trying to say. That's but then some I... people really do just, uh, they just kind of like always start drawing, you know, they just kind of like have that point when they're younger, they just, or maybe they, like you said, they always start shooting baskets, you know, maybe they just have that natural desire to do that. Um, but yeah, I feel like some people do have to be taught to, to do certain things and then they can get interested in that and then say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, I want to do that. Yeah. Well, Ryan, that's all I had for you question wise. I liked all all the stuff we talked about, philosophy, education, ceramics. I feel like we didn't even get a dive into ceramics and just anything you said blew my mind. Like I'm like what's a soda fire? Uh, just uh. <laughs> everything you explained was so fascinating and I want to thank you for coming on the show. And I want to give you the opportunity if you want to shout out your um, pottery Instagram so people can follow you or just any other thing you want to shout out. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for having me, man. I do really appreciate it. If, uh, if anybody wants to follow me, my Instagram is liveslow underscore pottery. And uh, yeah, big shout out to my professors. I will say Trevor, Trevor Dunn and Stephen Haywood, they've, uh, they've killed it and they've given me everything I know. So yeah. That's thanks, awesome. uh, thanks for having me, though. I yeah. love it. Thanks for coming on, Ray. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.